Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Connor Doherty, is an economics reporter with The New York Times, and more importantly, the author of a new book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Uh, The book is about housing. The book is about how housing got all messed up in America. And the metaphor. The the end of the American dream. The Golden Gates. Yes. There's a bridge. Well, the uh, Golden Gates is the metaphor is that cities have become so expensive that we have erected a set of gates around them in the form of high rent and home prices. I met you uh, in the city of San Francisco. Yes, where the Golden Gate Bridge is. On purpose, there is no Golden Gate Bridge on the cover. For, Absolutely, because we did not want it to seem like a tour guide, <laughs> which it is not. Uh, but San Francisco is ground zero, both in some ways for housing crisis that occurs in many places, but particularly for a political counter-mobilization. Exactly. Uh, which a lot of your book is about. Well, because if you think about it, for 40 years, there has been recognition by various economists and policymakers that there is a housing problem, that there's a housing shortage, and that this is unnecessarily raising prices. And interestingly enough, that recognition begins in the Bay Area. I found a bunch of books where people were talking about this. Famously, the New York, famously now anyway, at the time it kind of went under the radar, but the New York Times wrote a headline in 1981 that said, changing San Francisco is foreseen as a haven for wealthy and childless. So <laughs> this, this problem has been going on for a long time. And so it makes sense that the place that was always the worst would have the early kind of indications of a, of a housing crisis. Matt, I should say, we kind of have a conflict of interest on this uh, yes. housing podcast because you are, <laughs> you are a bit character in the book. But uh, the, the, the jokes aside, there was a lot of writing. There was a lot of discussing. And so what I think I kind of tried to do, at some level, what this book is, is a question, which is how do policy thoughts become real movements? Mm-hmm. And I had known as a reporter, I'd, I'd read your book, uh, The Rent is Too Damn High. I would knew Ed Glazer for years. So I was well aware of this issue. I'd, you know, Like I said, I was reading people like you. I was reading economists. I was super well aware of this issue. And I think maybe even I wrote a story about it or two for the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. But they're always very boring stories. They yeah. were always economists say blah, 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 you know, uh, and, and the, there was not much you could add other than – this is a huge problem. I wish people were worrying about it, but they're not. <laughs> right. So let's move on to the next problem. And I think your own book even has this. I remember the end of your book, it goes something like, well, normally this is the part where I have a bunch of conclusions about what we're supposed to do about it. But all we're really supposed to do about it is talk about it and raise awareness of it. And that's as much as we can do. I mean, this is the sort of transmission belt of ideas, right? I had read a lot of economics literature yeah, that was like, ah, this is the problem. So then I tried to write for a, you know, popular audience of people who care about politics. Like, this is what economists think about this. But there was no story to cover, right? Like, we're we're journalists, right? It's like, you want to write about, like, these people are doing this thing. But nobody was doing anything. Totally. So the end of my book was like, I don't fucking know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, totally. And actually, I think some of the, the one, one of there's a lot of history in this book. Uh, it's not a history book by any means, but we kind of go back and look at how things happen. 
The one history in this book that is totally original, meaning I had not seen it anywhere, is, is this transmission of ideas. There was this guy named Bernard Frieden who in 1979 wrote this book called The Environmental Protection Hustle, which despite the horrific Fox News title is a very reasonable <laughs> book. And he kind of says the area has this huge housing problem. NIMBYism is a huge problem. It's kind of amazing, like a lot of things, how much people identify very early on. And uh -huh. he says, and the problem is the people who don't live somewhere yet can never organize, so this will never be solved. And he kind of, and he says all the, I mean, this may turn out to be true, but anyway. So then that guy ends up having a student named Ken Rosen, who was an economist at Berkeley. Then Ken Rosen had a graduate student named Larry Katz, who is now this famous economy at Harvard. Larry Katz went to Harvard. He worked with Ed Glazer. And then Ed Glazer started writing about this and being interviewed about this, and that led to people like you and Ryan Avent writing about it. And then, and then suddenly there I am in the year 2013 or so thinking to myself, wow, everybody has fondled this topic as much as humanly <laughs> possible. There's nothing you can even write. Uh, maybe someone comes up with a new study and you could write about like Moretti and then came out with new studies that said actually the cost of NIMBYism was $1.7 trillion. But it was always like which new paper are mm -hmm. you going to write about? That was like the state of the journalism, which is a pretty sorry state of things. So then one day I met Jeremy Stoppelman, who is the founder and chief executive of Yelp, and he told me he had given money to this woman, Sonia Trouse, who ran the Bay Area Renters Federation or BARF, famous acronym <laughs> now. And I thought – this is the first time I've heard of someone who's not just very engaged in this issue at an activist level, but is hyper aware of the housing shortage as an issue. It's not just they're complaining about the rent being too high or something like that. It's not a proxy indicator. It's they are trying to attack this root thing that all these economists have been talking about for years and years and years. And I just dove in. I immediately started following her to uh, – Board of Supervisors meetings and all these other things because it was the first time. And it's kind of funny. When I wrote that first story about Sony for the New York Times, a number of people, local San Francisco people, were like, you just wrote an article, a big article in the New York Times about like a crazy person. Because there are crazy people <laughs> that show up to the yeah. Board of Supervisors and say all sorts of stuff. And they, you, you just kind of – I mean there's a guy named Starchild who was actually hanging out with – that's his real legal name. And he's a kind of – he calls himself an erotic service provider, but he's a prostitute in San Francisco and he goes and shows up to every board of supervisors meeting. And somebody said, your article on Sony is as if you wrote an article about Starchild as, as if he's this political movement. But the reason I knew that that wasn't the case was I did know all this research. I did know that for decades people had been taught that this was a real thing that very serious people were very worried about, including the Obama administration. Right, that's the thing, right, is she has something of the temperament of the neighborhood meeting crank, yes. who is a personality that is known to residents of every American city. But this is actually an idea that was certified by the majority, I don't want to say all, but the, the clear preponderance of the well-qualified experts who have looked at this subject. I'm not going to go, I, I assume in some of your interviews you get actually more into this stuff. Um, uh -huh. In case you have somehow never heard an episode of this show before, uh, quantitative limits on the supply of housing lead to scarcity and yes. price problems. And that is the policy background. But the point is, so you see Sonia, right? And she's showing up and she's yeah. um, talking about this stuff. And you know that this is like the consensus in exactly. the academic literature. And you've also seen, like the, the White House, you, you alluded to this. They put out this little report. That, and they they had like, put that uh, out right when I met Sonia. So, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the top, the political system at an elite level was starting to say, maybe we should do something about this problem that has been identified a long time ago. And then you have Sonia and she is – actually doing something. Totally. And for me, I mean, to be totally honest, I just wanted a way to get my my rip on the story. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, as far as I was concerned, I wrote one article about it for the New York Times and I thought it would be a one-off. Uh -huh. But then more stuff happened. Oh, well, so after the article ran, this person in Boulder writes me a note and says, hey, we're doing this Yimby Town conference in Boulder. Do you want to come? And I was so worried I was going to waste the New York Times' money uh, in going to Boulder that I actually found a whole other story in Boulder, and that way I could rationalize <laughs> the cost of the trip. Because I was convinced I would show up and it'd be like four people in a bar being like, yeah, I read that article. It was great, you know. <laughs> but no, it's like 200 people. Mm -hmm. 
There was the I remember the mayor or the former mayor of Sitka, Alaska was there. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the mayor of Boulder was one of the people who had organized there, the former mayor. People from all over. Yeah, Pretty yeah. much every city that housing is screwed up, Seattle, Austin, Portland, Boston, take your pick. And then even some of the southwestern cities like Nashville and stuff. Hmm. So there, Minneapolis, there were uh, – that's not in the southwest, but you, uh, <laughs> a lot of smaller cities too. Sure. So – I was like, wow, this is a real thing. This is crazy. This mm-hmm. is this is a this is a becoming, I don't know if the word movement is right, but this is becoming a a new political constituency that is worth looking at. So when then of course, inevitably, they started clashing with tenant groups a lot. There became all these fights. And that led me to just sort of treat the whole story. And that pretty much is what led to the book. But it all began with this idea which is how do I see a policy idea in action and really the creation of a new political constituency. And I think one of the reasons this has been so contentious, as I'm sure listeners uh, to this podcast are aware, there has been this ongoing fight between what are called the Yimbies, the yes in my backyard, the people who are fighting for more housing supply, want to deregulate housing in cities, and the anti-gentrification groups, which think that this will just raise prices even more and encourage more people to move the city and demolish rent control apartments and all this type of thing. But I think that the reason, beyond the, the reasons I just stated, that this fight has been so contentious is that, you know, there are political alliances that form for historical reasons. And once they form, they become pretty comfortable. They're mm-hmm. just convenient and people know how to deal with it and they know who to call and whatever. But for this Yimby thing to be successful, they kind of have to break that thing up. Mm-hmm. They have to they have to take an old alliance and split it down the middle and peel off a bunch of people. And the process of that is violent and messy and you know not literally violent, but it is it is it requires you know, kind of some brass knuckle politics yeah. stuff. So let, let's talk about some of the situation on the ground in, yeah. in California because both sides of this are sort of more advanced there than, yeah. than on the East Coast. Because one thing is that there's a much more robust uh, rent control infrastructure in San Francisco yes. in particular. And I think in California generally than we have sort of left in most East Coast states, right? You have a large constituency of people who are in rent controlled Units in the actual city of San Francisco, it's a, it's a ton of people, including, right. by the way, a ton of the tech people who everyone hates. Right? So, uh-huh. uh, or I'm I'm joking, obviously, but you know, <laughs> I went all around the country mm-hmm. for this book. I went to I spent a lot of time in Minneapolis. My wife is from Minneapolis, so I spend a lot of time there just naturally, and I got to mm-hmm. know a lot of people there. And as everyone knows, or listeners of this podcast, one of the, they recently became the first major city to essentially get rid of single family zoning. So in in Minneapolis, they sort of had the Biggest, clearest political success. Yes, or, or it, Oregon too. Yeah, right. But I, I, I think in part because in Minneapolis you didn't have the rent control totally constituency. So the the you know when when Sonia names her group Bay Area Renters Federation, yeah. right? she wants to say she is representing the interests of renters yes. versus single family homeowners. And in Minneapolis, you sort of could generate that political cleavage. Totally. So anyway, all I wanted to say is, is mm. that I went all around the country for this book, but I ended up doing most of it in California because it was the same story, but just in like slightly more muted, more frankly, boring tones uh-huh. <laughs> in other cities. And I I did not ever find a place where the story was materially different. It was just a little like quieter. right? Uh-huh. And, and so the stunning thing about the story was how the same it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny because every city is so different. Their local policies are so different. They'll tell you some historical reason why the city is so different than ever the city. But it's not. They're all the same. They have a bunch of single-family homes <laughs> and they consume most of the land. And and anyway, so the situation in California is super bad. Uh, the rent control, and as you just alluded to in Minneapolis, so Lisa Bender, who is the president of the city council in Minneapolis, she's kind of like the renter's people. She mm-hmm. had like a tenant bill of And she's also like the Yimby's people. Right. And that that same politician can be like the vessel for all these interests, as you just said. And in San Francisco, that's like not possible. You are either the tenant person and you hate real estate developers and all real estate interests. I'm, I'm being a little uh-huh. neon, but not that really. And 
and or you have to be the developer shill and you know even if and even you know nonprofit affordable housing developers in San Francisco are right. regarded with some degree of suspicion so the established battle line in San Francisco housing is tenants versus landlord exactly and single family homeowners are just allowed to sit off to the side and say yes landlords are horrible and tenants should, you know what I mean? They're right. just, they're just like, they're allowed to be Switzerland. And I think what pissed so many people off about Sonia was she just like pulled them into the fracas and was like, no, you're the problem, you know? Right. And and that was, that was the declaration of war, if you will. And I mean, the the reason they're the problem, right? Fundamental, because you get it, right? Like if you live in an apartment and somebody is raising your rent, the person who's raising your rent is your landlord. Yes. Not a single family homeowner three blocks or a mile away. But it's the single-family homes, like, why are they the fundamentally the problem? Well, so they control all the politics, basically. The, and that's through voting. So that's natural. That's that's not on them, right? right. I mean, if you are an engaged citizen, good for you. <laughs> uh, but in most cities, even to some extent in New York, where you're from, most of the landmass is these kind of single-family home neighborhoods. It's like about 75%. It's about three-quarters of most cities. And... And then, and this is what leads to this problem we have, or I don't know if you want to call it a problem, but all around America, there's a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. In the Bay Area, it's south of Market. In the, the D.C., it's the Wharf. In Minneapolis, it's the North Loop. In New York, it's Hudson Yards, where it's some former industrial district where they decided, oh, we're going to put the tallest, fanciest possible condos in that neighborhood. Soma is the one in San Francisco. And that is seen as, you know, basically solving the problem. Uh-huh. But it doesn't solve the problem. And in fact, it just leads to these things that truly are luxury housing. And when I say luxury housing, I mean like $9 million penthouses and stuff. In San Francisco, essentially everything is called luxury housing if it's new and market rate. But I actually in my mind try to make a distinction. And this is something I think gets lost. If they're building a bunch of $3,500 one bedrooms for techies, I think that's by and large good, meaning there's huge demand for that. People will buy, will rent at those prices. They will live there. They will contribute to the local economy. They will work, whatever, right? All this Uh stuff. When you start building like condo buildings where the cheapest one is the $3 million one and the top is 25 million or 40 million in some cases, that really is just like some giant foreign investment vehicle. Uh And Uh maybe, maybe people should, maybe policy should be trying to build a lot fewer of those uh, on, on what is, you know, the public's land to some extent, even though it was privately owned. Anyway, so I think when Sonia came along, she drew these battle lines and she was so, I mean, one thing about Sonia, she, I mean, one of the things that makes her amazing as a, as a character to follow in journalism is I don't think she's even capable of being duplicitous. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like at one point she filed this lawsuit against this suburb. She was clearly filing the lawsuit so that she'd A, get attention and B, create a nonprofit Mm-hmm. that she could essentially steer donations to and employ herself in activism. And she would say like, oh, well, I filed the lawsuit so I could create the nonprofit so that I could make money to, you, you know, it's <laughs> like she's she's so open about everything. And at one point, so in San Francisco, and this is true to, again, to a certain degree in every city, the affordable nonprofit, affordable housing developer world has an alliance with the tenants' rights world and that alliance, I assume, has existed because they needed a bunch of people to show up to meetings and say, we want affordable housing. And tenants were their natural people mm-hmm. for that. And Sonia, like, very openly was like, yeah, I'm going to try to cleave that alliance so that the affordable housing developers are divorced from the rent control complex, basically. You know, And, mm-hmm. of course, this really offended people because she's sort of saying, like, I'm going to destroy your, your alliance. But um, – but that's what they attempted to do. And, it, of course, it was very loud and very angry. So, oh. <laughs> Let's take a break and, and yeah. then turn to, to the next chapter of that story. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. 
Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, so this kind of starts out with like one, it's like a one woman show. Yes. Uh, doing this stuff. But she's got she's got some money from the Yelp guy. Um, yeah, so the money from the Yelp guy was kind of small. Mm-hmm. But then she went and filed this lawsuit and her and this guy, Brian Hanlon, who has gone on to become this pretty big guy in, yeah. in, in housing, uh, but at the time, he was just working. I mean, I remember him. He was working like a job at the U.S. Forestry Service. Uh-huh. And it was clearly like not a very demanding job because he would be at all these board of supervising meetings for three, four hours a day when he was supposed to be working. And they, it was Brian and Sonia, this whole crew of people. And then they, it was amazing to watch happen. Then Brian just kind of tells me like, hey, I'm trying to start this thing called California Yimby, which now has like millions of dollars from CZI, and, which is the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, mm-hmm. and Stripe, and some pretty big donors have, and I think they may have, 15, 20 people working for them now, Brian effectively wrote SBA 27, which was the big upzoning bill, which then became SB 50. So you can draw a straight line from those early YIMBY meetings to SB 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, Laura Clark, who I'm sure you're all aware of, is the effective CEO of the YIMBY. I mean, Sonia is kind of like the – I joke to people. I was like, Sonia is Jesus and Laura is St. Paul, which for those who had had, had humanity, but St. Paul was kind of the – I'm not sure if my early church history is good enough. St. Paul was kind of the architect of Catholicism as a a church rather than just kind of Jesus was was kind of a wandering philosopher. Somebody has to like lay down the tap and be like, here's how this really works, right? Okay. And and she's built this organization, you know, with tons of members and they give dues and they have – parties and and it's kind of become this like social thing where people go to planning meetings and then you know go get drunk after work or I mean I hopefully don't drink too much. So sure. what's fascinating to me is the part of the way they've built this counterbalance to the single family home renter empire if you will is by making local politics this basically a social club. So this kind yeah. of spread into into two different directions, right? So on the one hand, you have the um, sort of on the ground, you know, uh, foot soldiers, right? So it's there's now people who will show up to local meetings. If yes. You, if you look in the academic literature, um, I had Catherine Einstein on and, you know, she she's did this exhaustive survey of like who comes to local planning meetings in greater Boston. And it's people who are older, whiter, richer, and much more likely to be homeowners than the overall electorate. Yes. Um, And so there's a conscious effort to counteract that trend, right? To not just say, well, this is what the literature says. It has to be like that. We could maybe get 20-something renters to come to meetings. And then you have Hanlon. They do lawsuits and legislation and – it's like a, a whole real infrastructure. Yeah. So it's it's if you think about it, they have a local arm. And the, and the, this is true all around the state. There's little Yimby groups everywhere mm-hmm. now. There is the legal arm, if you will. Mm-hmm. 
And then there is this state arm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can tell me, but there seems to be some efforts to create some kind of federal arm, though that's more of a nationwide thing. But anyway, it was fascinating to watch how fast this infrastructure developed. And it, of course, shows you how big of a problem this is. If Mm -hmm. you can't live and if you are feeling like you have no ability to get a toehold in the place where you want to live and potentially raise a family or whatever your particular desires are, that feeling of instability is going to motivate you to politics like almost nothing else is. Uh, And and I think that if this book – should be on shelves 40 years from now, which if I should be so lucky. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just I'm just kind of throwing the pie in the yeah. sky out there. It'll be because this is also, aside from housing and all this stuff we're talking about, this kind of wonderful story of people discovering how accessible their democracy can mm-hmm. be to them if all they do is show up. There are people who clearly have some, some ambition yeah. to politics. Very, But then there are people who just kind of discover it and accidentally get into it. And in many of the most beautiful ways, kind of just go, well, what is public policy? What is my government? What is the point of all this? Who Who is the mayor? Who? How does mm-hmm. one even do that, right? And this is people kind of discovering that. And what's startling about it is you realize two things, which is things we're all constantly learning in life, which is one, nobody is in charge, right? Mm-hmm. That you, The world is just run by people who are, you know, maybe let's say moderately smart, but they're just kind of figuring it out like anyone else. And two, if you just start showing up to your city council meetings and requesting meetings with people and just showing up at their office, they will like start listening to you to a degree that's almost kind of startling at, at, at times. And single family homeowners clearly had that had a had a monopoly on that knowledge, and that's no longer the case. And I think you're watching, like I said, a political awakening. I think people who care about totally other issues, that if there's just something that is frustrating you, but you don't feel it's on the political radar in a correct way and feel like, well, maybe it's impossible to make changes. I mean, it's not that they've like miraculously won all their battles, but the extent to which this went from, in 2012, a purely academic topic to, by 2017, like a real political topic is amazing. And you have this this portrait of... It's like it's not that many people, you know, who sort of made this all happen. You can count them like I, like you know them. I have met most of these people now at, you know, a couple conferences. And then from a couple of organizers, a couple of donors, a couple of activists, it starts sprouting like politicians. People now talk about that first Yimby town as if it's like Woodstock or something uh-huh. like that. It's like, <laughs> oh, I was there, you know, right? And sure. There was a million things that have happened in the world, like the first Saturday Night Live cast, or there are certain physicists that were in like labs at a time of a big discovery. Mm-hmm. And all of those people went on to be someone mm-hmm. uh, in some way, or everyone who hung out at CBGB, you know, the talking uh-huh. heads and Blondie, <laughs> right? There are these moments in time where some explosion happens, and every kind of particle that emanates from that explosion goes on to be something. And I, I actually think that explosion that happened in the Bay Area at that time will have influences on this on state and national politics, I mean, to the extent that California is always on the national radar in some way, for quite some time. And not just because of housing, and I think that's so important. I obviously do think it's so important. But also because once people overcome some, let's call it activation energy, mm-hmm. which is that they've figured out where City Hall is, they've figured out how to endure a meeting, they've got certain friends, you know, they just get good at Mm -hmm. it, right? Once they have that, the barrier for them to do it a second time over a second issue or a third time or fourth is so low. Mm -hmm. This book kind of also delves a little bit into California history. Mm -hmm. And even though it's a little bit specific to California with Jerry Brown and Pat Brown, and I kind of like weaved their two stories together, the same stuff was happening all across America. They were suburbanizing at a very rapid pace. They were building a ton of freeways to accommodate the suburbanization and it was freaking a bunch of people out. And of course, the Sierra Club and other things kind of became national movements in response to that same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It was bigger and bolder and badder in California, but it was the same thing all around the country. There was this big event in San Francisco in the, it started in the 50s, but it really gained steam in the 60s called the Great Freeway Revolts. Mm -hmm. And Kevin Starr, who died a couple years ago, but he was the kind of king daddy historian of San Francisco, 
he always talks about how Californians were sort of apolitical at that time. A lot of them were from somewhere else. They uh-huh. almost thought it like wasn't their business to be getting super involved in politics. But that the freeway, well, they were going to build eight freeways over the city of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. They started with the Embarcadero Freeway, which has since been destroyed by the earthquake, and it went right in front of the iconic ferry building. Yep. They were going to build two over Golden Gate Park. I mean, it was just a, a massive, horrible plan. People flipped out so hard that they mobilized and organized and and started this huge neighborhood groups, uh-huh. uh, all sorts of neighborhoods, to oppose the freeway revolts. You can draw a, like an, a total straight line from the freeway revolts to the kind of NIMBY uh-huh. complex that is now fighting the, 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 the people like Sonia. So that one event, those freeway revolts, created an architecture that still persists to this day. And I guess I would submit that this this YIMBY activation mm-hmm. will persist for, in various different forms for decades and, and it's decades. And it's, it's a fascinating thing about, about the freeway revolts because, I mean, I think you can say that the the freeway revolters uh, in San Francisco, it, it, there was a movement in Washington, D.C. It was called the Emergency Committee on the Transportation Crisis. Jane Jacobs was very involved in New York. Yes. And, and I don't know if people know this, but it's like the plan was to put a, uh, you know, a, a freeway like across Houston Street in, in New York. Uh, in, in D.C., uh, U Street, Florida Avenue would have had an inner beltway. And if you uh, – Washingtonians, you you can see at the pug, they have a, a poster from these days. And it, it says, uh, white man's roads through black man's homes. Yeah. Um, and that was the, the emergency committee mobilizing against it. And they really saved those cities. 100%. You know, by, by blocking it. And it then – created, though, a set of political institutions and norms and acculturation that the way you saved cities was by stopping projects from happening, right? And it takes a – it winds up taking a a sour turn, even though it's the same – many times literally the same people in all kinds of cases, the same institutions that they created. And it's the same, you know, impulse that I think is – Worthy, which is to say that traditional uh, type cities like we have in the Northeast and San Francisco, a little bit uniquely on the West Coast, are like worth having. But at a certain point, you can't save the city by preventing anything from changing. I totally agree. And part of the problem that we've worked ourselves into is. If if we were just building a little bit all mm-hmm. the time, the city would be changing in front of our eyes all the time. But it would be like at a manageable level, mm-hmm. and of course, we would be creating more affordable housing, you know, because it would be getting older, right? So now we're at this place where everyone wants to like open the fire hose, and that is disconcerting to people, which I of course get. But uh, you know, I always tell people. So I'm uh, I'm 42 years old. I was born in 1977, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so I'm a very late Gen Xer, but uh, in many ways I really am a Gen Xer. I never really <laughs> used the internet until I was a working adult, and uh, I saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana together. So that, that makes me uh, Pearl Jam was the opening band, and they didn't even release an album yet. <laughs> so anyway, the thing about Gen Xers is they're very low birth years, so uh-huh. nobody cared what we thought. We, I mean, aside from <laughs> Bill Clinton talking about his boxer shorts on MTV, there was like no relevance to us politically and right and so i feel like and as a reporter mm-hmm. particularly in housing it's almost like a really great place to be because uh-huh. i'm sort of well aware that i'm relegated to observer status mm-hmm. and i feel like i'm sitting there in the middle of these two bubble generations uh-huh. the baby boomers <laughs> and the millennials just like watching them go at it but they both have the numbers to actually go at it yeah. whereas like i was part of this generation where it's like stand down we have no numbers you know and so it, at times, I, I actually did feel it, it is fascinating to watch this, this big generational divide. And also the fact that both of those generations are so large that they need a lot of housing. Right. And so they're going to just inevitably disrupt, the, in, in the actual sense of that word, the course of cities because there's so many of them that they're going to require a pretty significant alteration to how cities look, how they operate. And that's just kind of the way it goes. This is a like a like a literal truth. I, I've seen a million Gen Xers on Twitter sort of lamenting the lack of Gen X voice in, in national politics often. But as you were saying, it's literally just a smaller number of people, right? Like that that's the the reason why. And then by the same token, it's like 
when there weren't that many new people being added to the population, the fact that it was hard to add housing was not in practice a huge deal. Totally. Right? So, yeah. And, but it's like there are more millennials than baby boomers because of immigration and how human reproduction works. And so, like, unless there's new houses for them, there's a problem, right? Like, it's all it's all these people and they've got to go somewhere. And it's the, it's the opposite of neighborhood meeting thinking, which is about, like, what do I think about this block? Is, like, systematic thinking. Which is, look, there's tens of millions of people. They're graduating from college. They got to go somewhere. Where should they go? And it seems like high wage, high demand urban areas would be a good place for people to go, in which case you would have to build houses. 100%. No, I mean, and therein lies the thing. It's kind of amazing, too, if you look at it, how, like, I don't know the exact numbers, but at the end of World War II, I think they were building like 150,000 homes a year or something. Mm -hmm. Like in the U.S., obviously the population was considered, the whole nation was like a third of the size then. And then it was like they jumped to like by like 10 times within Mm -hmm. like three or four years. I mean, in my head, I'm also like, how do they even like... I mean, there's like supply chain. How did you, how would you even like, (laughs) where did it come from? Where do you even get enough lumber, enough workers? Like, you know, I'm I'm always fascinated by these ideas of like natural limits, Uh Um, meaning, you know, deficits and things like that are just like these theoretical numbers. But the actual, like, how do you get enough trees to build the, the, (laughs) like, that's where the real, the real limits are. And we have never had any kind of building boom, like to even half come even close to matching the kind of building boom we had during the, when the baby boomers really came online. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating. Actually, you know, one of the things I'm actually really optimistic about with the economy Mm -hmm. is that even today, if you look at like the component of GDP that is building, which by and large determines a huge amount of the business cycle. In fact, this one economist wrote a paper the title of which was, is the housing cycle the business cycle? Meaning that almost the whole thing ends up being housing. That is still so low. The amount of housing we're building right now is the lowest it's been at any time that wasn't a recession. Mm -hmm. So I actually, whenever I look at it, can we, people talk in the economists, oh, can we get to two and a half percent growth? Can we get to, I'm like, actually we could, if we just let that housing thing rip. Yep. Uh, that would, I mean, then we probably would eventually go into recession, but at least there'd be a like robust expansion for for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I I read somebody today offhandedly refer to us as late in the economic cycle. I mean, it's true that we're a long time from the previous recession, but normally what late in a cycle means is essentially you've tapped out housing construction. Yeah. the flip side of if you have a lot of people, you need a lot of houses, is at a certain point, it's like you got enough yeah. houses, right? And then investment declines because uh, there, there's no more demand for it. And we're not anywhere close to that. Totally. And so back to kind of the politics and all that about this is at some point, whatever plan we come up with, you have to have a place to build it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a gigantic public housing plan, go for it. Somebody's got to put it somewhere. Whether it's Lots of affordable housing or in combination inclusionary zoning. I mean, what we could – you your show has hashed out the political trade-offs of all these things. But at some point, you have to be able to put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And there's never really been a constituency that sort of anointed themselves as the people who will ensure mm-hmm. that it can get put somewhere. And that's kind of like the arc of the book, um, though there are these detours, you know, where you're seeing these tenants. And and one of the things that was fascinating to me is I feel like there's so much you can still learn mm-hmm. from journalism mm-hmm. and so much that these academic papers, like, do not capture. By the way, I should say I had, like, an epiphany in my own, like, work uh life a couple years ago or about a decade ago. So I used to work next to Ben Castleman, Mm -hmm. uh, who is an economics reporter at the New York Times. He was at 538. And at that time, like the bar for a quote unquote data story was like considerably lower. And and I would kind of get my Excel sheet out and go through some census data and be like, did you know that, you know, there's more of this? And 
Then, of course, people like Ezra came along and Nate Silver. And, like, the bar for, like, a data story and, like, the skills you needed to have to do that story <laughs> was so high that I was like, I am – you either had to do what Ben did, which he became a computer pro- – he can program in R and, like, he's, like, serious business now – or and I just like retired. I was like, I am out, and and I just <laughs> decided, learned to tell stories. Yes, I oh, man, screw these spreadsheet stories. Like I am out, and so I have spent so much time going around, sort of trying to ask questions like, what is just really basic questions like, what does displacement really look like? Mm-hmm. And so one of the stories I follow in the book is I spent you know pretty much like a year, but like three months intensely with this family. And I met them the day they got this rent increase. So they, they're they a Latino family. They live in Redwood City, which despite being in Silicon Valley, is a very typical place. It's uh, They have no renter protections, mm-hmm. no nothing. There was this community gym called the Siena Center, and it's one of these multi-purpose spaces mm-hmm. where sometimes it's got a Our Lady of Guadalupe celebration, and sometimes it's a basketball game, and sometimes it's kids doing homework and Zumba classes. And they, so they, of course, start doing tenant counseling because that a lot of people are mm-hmm. getting evicted in the Silicon Valley, and these people walk in with an $800 rent increase. And I just decided, well, I asked them, and I, you know, yeah. I wanted to follow. It's like, let's just see this whole thing. Like, how do they organize? How do they find people? And what I liked about these tenants is they were, like, really real people. There was mm-hmm. no group they were attached to. Yeah. They were truly just, like... Oh my God, I got an 800 you know, they, 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 and they did start to organize, but this was extremely organic. Mm-hmm. But then, and spoiler, like it doesn't go very well for them and they get a crappy buyout deal. And next thing you know, they're moving out. And I asked myself like, so who moves in? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, because throughout the protest, everyone's like Facebook, you know, is going to move in and all these things. And of course there was another Latino family that had almost identical jobs. The, the men were construction workers and the, the mom was a, was a cleaned houses. And, but they just plowed like eight people into this place that used to have four. And this is like an incredibly common story mm-hmm. that, is, that is in all the literature but not super talked about. Yep. And of course it makes sense, right? Because the number of people who are in the Silicon Valley who actually work in tech is relatively small, but the influence they have on the economy mm-hmm. is quite large. So there's, and it's not like these are longtime residents. These are relatively new immigrants and they were displacing relatively new immigrants. I mean, these are all people coming to the Bay Area to enjoy, and we should encourage them to get on the escalator of, of betterment and wealth creation and all these things. And so as I followed these people, I just felt like the story of displacement was just very muddied in my mind mm-hmm. in terms of how it works, who's hurting, how, who, who, whether it's long-time residents and new, like all those things get, if you really start to spend time and follow things individually, your understanding of this issue just gets so incredibly muddied. Although I will say the one thing I come back to time and time again is, Man, this sure looks like scarcity. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's take a break and, and then talk about some big time politics. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. 
a lot of things happened, but one of the sort of capstones of this movement has been an effort to do a big statewide uh, rezoning. Uh, SB 50 was its most recent name, and this would just mandate that you allow more apartment construction across large swaths of, of California. It got a good amount of national attention for a state legislative initiative, but ultimately doesn't pass. So ha- has anything really changed as a result of this this Yimby activism that, that you've been covering? Well, I would say yes. Just the conversation changing is something, right? Mm-hmm. On top of that, uh, there's a million other little bills that have just kind of like quietly passed in the meantime. And so Nancy Skinner, who is, you know how like sometimes there'll be in sports some big superstar uh-huh. and everyone's trying to guard that person and then the other person comes yeah. in and like, she's kind of like that to Scott Weiner sometimes. Right. <laughs> she passed a law that, and they, they actually, it was kind of funny that when they were pushing it through, they wouldn't talk about it. They like uh-huh. didn't want attention on it. And it essentially did the Minneapolis thing in California. You can basically do a triplex on almost any lot in California now. It really is like a thing where it's like Wiener like ran down the field to attract a double team. And then Nancy Skinner's over there with like, oh, I have an accessory dwelling unit. Bill. Exactly. But actually the bill lets you build a three-unit house. It lets you split a house anywhere. and put a three yeah. in the back. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's fascinating. So and you know, to say nothing of the lawsuit bill they passed, SB 167, I don't want to give everyone the like number soup. But the point is, <laughs> there's a bunch of little bills that may over time amount to at least forward progress. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is too, the fact that people are even disappointed that SB 50 failed and that it and that it was possibly within, I mean, if there's the whole diabolical backstory is that if this legislator hadn't been off with Trump that day, they might have actually passed. Like uh-huh. there was this, there's a, that story is making its way. But the second SB 50 failed, mm-hmm. Tony Atkins, who is the president of the of the Senate in California, goes to her microphone and says, you're going to have to compromise because we're going to pass something about this this year. Whether or not that ends up being the case, she's putting her credibility pretty heavily mm-hmm. on the line there. Then Gavin Newsom, who has unapologetically gone after every issue you can possibly go after, healthcare, whatever else, is his latest State of the State speech, he only talked about housing. So I feel like if that would have been introduced five years ago, people, it would just been like, what, what the hell is this? Like, sure. you know. <laughs> so by the way, I will say um, it was pretty funny. When SB50 was happening, I was on Twitter and I wrote, oh, I'm such a homebody that my Twitter feed is – it was the same time as impeachment. I was like – that my Twitter feed is like 10 to 1 SB 50 to impeachment. And somebody tweeted back to me, you should follow this account because it only focuses on national issues. And it was Gavin Newsom's Twitter account. (laughs) Right. And I do think – I mean that stupid Twitter joke aside, I do think there's polling and there's criticism that that was really starting to hold, that he was not focusing on the state's biggest issue. It's not a coincidence that he made his state of the, I mean, he's not some guy who right. just like accidentally does things. But so this is like politics are tough, right? Because so California is a very democratic state, right? So one strand of how you think about politics is you're democratic governor of California. It's a very democratic state. You have strong democratic state legislatures. So you want to focus the agenda on topics that unite your coalition. And that means finding ways for the state to fight Trump on immigration. It means finding ways for the state to fight Trump on healthcare, right? Because that's what, like, all of Gavin Newsom's voters don't like Donald Trump. They, you know, this is like what they want them to do, whereas this housing topic is the opposite. It's like Scott Wiener's bill had some Republican support. Uh, It's opposed by a lot of lefty groups. It's like people are fighting with each other. And if you can duck it, right? Like, that's, that's smart. But then the flip side is you want your constituents to agree with you. But you also need to deliver on problems that impact people and that you have control over. And like Gavin Newsom can't make Donald Trump go away, but Californians experience housing-related problems in their lives. And, you know, Jerry Brown got through two terms not really doing anything 
on housing, but people liked him. But it seems like Newsom is feeling pressure to to do something. So Jerry Brown, uh, obviously, the Great Recession was his big thing, and right. the housing thing didn't really bubble up till the end. Jerry Brown also, like as you said, had the cult of Jerry Brown around him, and he could control the legislators sometimes just like by being Jerry Brown. Uh-huh. And he was when, like this like old wizard of yeah, California exactly. politics, right? And and you know people knew him. They like it's funny because I remember when Meg Whitman ran against him, they were people were saying like, "Oh, she has so much money." I'm like, I don't care how much money she has. Like <laughs> everybody knows his name, and he can walk into any town in California and just like identify their longstanding problem mm-hmm. and like what what's that worth. And the other problem is you can't really solve this housing problem. Like there's no winning here. Uh-huh. And that's that's like a really annoying issue to take on. But my whole thing is whatever, beyond the vanity and the whatever reasons people get into politics, like at some point people talk about leadership. It's not really mm-hmm. a leadership job. It's kind of like whatever problem is happening at that time, sorry, you're stuck with that. Right. And like it's not – it's a job in which like – things are kind of handed to you. Right. And I think, like, housing is what's been handed to him. Right. So have at it. I mean, because, you know, you think about, like, what, what did Jerry Brown accomplish? And, and it was a lot. But it was he took office at a time when people were just, like, really worried about the budget and yes. the recession and the fiscal impact. Whereas now, you know, it's 2021. Nobody's going to be impressed that in the midst of a, like, thriving California economy that, like, you matched spending to revenues. Yeah. Right? It's like, but housing. Anyway, so I think that Gavin is stuck with this problem that he can't really run on for president because let's be real here. It's but, – but this is what California needs. It's what California wants. And by the way, uh, on a separate topic, the first time I met Sonia, we met for coffee at this cafe in uh, Oakland. And she says to me, it's not just that these people show up and do this. It's that they are greeted as like heroes. They are – they are – invariably kind of described somewhere between an anti-capitalist and a like steward of good taste and community and design Mm -hmm. and all these different things. And she's like, what I need to change is that that person is seen as like a selfish asshole that showing up to that meeting, I mean, she overdoes it, right? But I just meant this was her, I'm, I'm not saying I advocate this position. I'm saying this is a quote, right? And what is startling to me is that seems to have happened. I always make Mm -hmm. the comparison to gay marriage where Gay marriage went from something people could like – like your uncle who's a conservative mm-hmm. could like reasonably be like, I don't hate gay people, but I just don't think they should be married. And, and people would ex- – there not that long ago. People would accept that. Well, he we're working on him. He just thinks a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And like within a very short period of time, it went from that to you're like out if you mm-hmm. or don't believe in gay marriage. On top of that, when the Supreme Court case happened, I remember there was a great article in the New York Times about how they couldn't even get like a really good lawyer to argue right. the other side. I hate to put it this way, but it was almost like thought police took over uh-huh. the the issue. And she very openly was like, I kind of want to attach a new kind of thought police to this issue where you don't just get you, – you have to feel like there is some degree of social risk mm-hmm. if you show up to these meetings and take over. This is the way this connects to Gavin Newsom is I think that these younger voters are starting to absorb this lesson. They have much like this free revolt thing we talked about, they've absorbed this ethos that more housing is more just and better and all these things. So I think Gavin actually has to contend with the fact that even if this is not quote unquote a winning issue, there is still a large number, a lar- large and increasing number of voters who are basically in support of some kind of mm-hmm. housing thing. I think this framing topic that that, that you raise is, is critical, and it, it brings us back to someone we were talking about at the beginning. But I know from, uh, like, Frank Baumgartner's research, and his big point in this book is, like, things normally just don't change. Like, it doesn't matter what the topic is. The American political system is is averse to, to changing. And one of the things that does make change happen is that how an issue is understood, like what what is the topic, gets gets framed differently. So one of his examples is death penalty activism, which is a certain point switched from it's about cruelty to it's about innocence. Um, and and with with um, marriage equality, right? It's a switch from this is about redefining marriage to this is about civil rights for for gay couples, right? And and with housing is the question of you flip it from is this about you know, um, neighborhood defenders against rapacious capitalism? Or is it about the selfishness of incumbent 
homeowners against change, right? And it's the same people. It's the same topic. Like, it's the same thing, but different stories get written. Depending on who – and even who do we understand, right? Because there's such a convention in old-time urban journalism of portraying the developers as the powerful group and the people at the meeting as the underdogs, right? And I think what you – you said this to me before, but that's not the case. Like homeowners hold a lot of political power. They have a ton of political power. In fact, so this guy, Harvey Mullich, mm-hmm. who uh, – John Logan and Harvey Mullich wrote this great book called Urban Fortunes. Mm-hmm. And they have this concept called the growth machine. Mm-hmm. And the basic idea is that all of a city is oriented towards growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is sometimes – in every city, this is colloquially referred to as downtown, mm-hmm. right? And this uh, – Bill Fischel, who is the economist who wrote this homeowner hypothesis that basically posits that single-family homeowners control everything – uh, basically says the growth machine has been challenged. Like mm-hmm. that was his framework. So I, I think part of the way you, you can think about what, what Scott Weiner was, was trying to do is sort of put the growth machine back together because this is posited to be, you know, developers are an important part of the growth machine, but it wins by having a broader constituency, including construction workers, public sector unions who, who need the tax revenue, things like that. And, and I think the sort of views of construction labor has been a, a missing piece in, in what we've been talking about. Totally. So one of the things I think – I forget which book I was reading, but one of the books kind of talks about how – maybe they didn't frame it this way, but the way I interpret it is, is there used to be like a really healthy tension in cities where <laughs> the, you, there were unions, private sector unions, which were all for all intents and purposes gone, who fought back against management. And then there was management and corporations who – you know, tried to enhance productivity by, you know, pushing new automation, whatever, right? And then there was single-family homeowners pushing against commercial businesses. You know, there was all these different kind of interest groups, and they were warring with each other, and one would win, one would lose, one would win, one would lose. And the net effect was that we created a healthy, vibrant city. And and then once that gets taken over by only single-family homeowners, it it becomes – just this mono thing where everything in the in the city is constructed more or less to inflate home values and keep keep this one constituency happy. So I think construction workers, I feel like they're a missing piece of this mm-hmm. equation. I mean they're they're always there, don't get me wrong, but they 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 don't they do seem exist. to they, they don't seem to be a big enough constituency to have really turned things. And Construction is like the only – outside of the Midwest where they still do have a substantial number of factories for all, all the rot notwithstanding. It's like the only blue-collar job – it's like the only job that somebody who did not go to college can make a pretty decent living because in the Bay Area, construction workers make anywhere from 40 to $60 an hour. Yeah, this is where I always want to see housing pulled into the national conversation is not as a housing topic – per se, but exactly as you say, it's a labor market topic. Like I see people standing around being like, well, what are we going to do if there's not as much manufacturing work anymore? Or like, it's all coming from China. But yeah. it's like, you don't import a fucking apartment building from China. Um, those those are jobs. And now if you could say, well, we, we can't get people doing construction work because we have such housing plenty that nobody would possibly want to live in any new houses. Like that would be one thing, but we're we're clearly not there, right? So it's a it's a solution on the consumption side, but also on the on the job side very critically and one that seems so much more promising to me than these like trade antics uh, because there's like there's like a good reason you don't import houses. Totally. And 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 construction is a I mean, it's skilled. It's thoughtful. It's it's not, you cannot just go be a construction worker tomorrow. It takes like a lot of work. I spent a lot of time for the book with a modular uh, construction factory mm-hmm. in, um, in Vallejo. Many of the people I met in that factory were like, one one woman actually used to be a waitress and she made like 12 bucks an hour plus tips. Now they make 30 bucks an hour. I'm not here to say this man is the savior of the American labor market and he's a good capitalist. And I mean, I do say that in the book, but I didn't say the savior part. But, but I just think like we're not talking enough about how to create new jobs. Yeah. One of the things I really admired about the union mm-hmm. that was in that factory – is their 
there's a, in, in California, this is probably true nationally too, there's a carpenter's union mm-hmm. and it's kind of a little separate from the building trades union. Yeah. But if you look at like what the carpenter's union does, they're like, they they go and they organize like crazy. They see their role the way a union used to see the role to like sit there and beat the shit out of management until they get what they want uh, and fight hard for workers and, and, and you know, better pay, better benefits, better hour, all these things, right? But they're not like, I mean, don't get me wrong, they have a presence in this capital, but they're not like so over the top focused on legislation. Mm -hmm. Like they see their role is if I'm going to increase the labor share of income, I mean, to to take it to macro for a second, I'm going to go, you know, fight like fucking hell with management and get the worker a better wage, Mm -hmm. a better life. So uh, before I let you go, I I like to ask people, you know, what, what did we miss here? What? What should I have asked you about? Good question. I guess the thing you should have asked me about is, well, I'm going to turn it back on you. There you go. I'm here with you, Matt, in our nation's capital. There it is. And I spend so much time thinking about state and local politics, mostly state politics, but local as well. And I almost like sort of ignore DC as a as a, <laughs> like I like I read about it, and I'm very grateful to my colleagues at the New York Times for covering it so great so wonderfully. But I just like don't think that much about the federal government, at least no more than any other like moderately educated voter. Let's just say somebody who has proposed some sort of national zoning reform in mm-hmm. some fashion or form got elected and decided I'm really going to pursue this. What do you think that would really look like? I haven't thought very much about this. Like, would they tie highway funding? Like, how would this really look? Yeah, I mean, I think the most promising venue is to do it through the surface transportation bill, uh, which dispenses highway funding and mass transit funding. The sort of small way to do it is to connect it to the the New Starts grants, which are for mass transit. Uh, The vast majority of the United States doesn't care about the New Starts program, uh, but the handful of cities that do try to get that money, if they were told, look, as part of your application, you need to show us uh, that you are doing a robust zoning reform, that would have a big impact in a small number of places. I think the the risk with that is that you don't tackle the sort of exclusionary suburbs, right? Because, you know, if you're talking about even in a relatively transit-oriented metro area, you know, Newton, Massachusetts, they don't care, right? They're not applying for a New Starts grant. It would only be the city of Boston that would be invested in that. Um, So then the really big lever would be you attach it to highway funding, right, which every state legislature cares about. And you would have some formula and you would say, look, if your state is underperforming on some housing affordability index, like you need to make some kind of changes. The question about could you get that done, I think has so much to do with ultimately what is the attitude of Republicans, right? Republicans are not super relevant in California, although their votes did wind up mattering on an SB 50. But, you know, the Trump administration will say, I think correctly, um, diagnose the housing problem in blue states. Um, But they do it mostly to troll rather than as an effort to make public policy, right? So like Trump like put out a thing and he's like, homelessness is terrible in California. And then, you know, he does his tweets. And then then his complaint about homelessness was that basically – Foreign billionaires buy amazing condos in LA yeah, and, and they have to look at homeless right. people. I was like, uh, do, you remember, do you remember that comment? Uh-huh. It was yes. crazy. Right. And then if you delve into like the footnotes of his CEA report, like it says what Obama's CEA report said, which totally. is correct, which is that the zoning is bad. But then when they had this vote in the state legislature, it, it's not like he like he didn't whip state Senate votes for SB 50. Right. Um, And several Republicans voted against it. And if they'd all been for it, it it would have passed. Right. Um, So if the and in in Congress, uh, it's uh, one of the Idaho senators has become this like Yimby guy. Um, But again, it's not clear if he's trying to get something done, Mike Braun, um, or if he's just trying to troll blue state liberals. Right. If Republicans want to say 
that they have deregulatory ideas that will boost economic growth, help working class Americans, and solve a major national problem. Like housing is the place where like that is true, right? And the Republican Party is a big deal in national politics. And if they united with the Yimby faction of progressives, like they could win, right? But the flip side of Republicans is the instinct to side with, you know, normative, older, whiter, suburban homeowners and do what they want, which in this case is not deregulate. And if if that's going to be the attitude, then it's – it's just it's hard to do anything. I think the problem with the Republican Party in uh, California is that they, beyond the obvious brand problem with Trump, is they they don't advertise. I mean, and that's why when people say California is an all democratic state, I'm like, I don't know that that's really relevant anymore because they're so, the stripes are so different that. Right. Uh, but it's like they've given up. But you're kind of reminding me of, and this is this is a great kind of weird counterintuitive note to end on. You're kind of reminding me of – I remember being – I think I was even in Washington, D.C. talking to somebody from Brookings and I was saying, you know, this is years ago, probably like 2012 or something. And I was like, what would it really take to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction? And he was like, oh, I hope Obama – maybe under the cover of night they could do it, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, and then, of course, Trump does it in like, you know, in like three days in December, right? And, <laughs> and I uh, – it's fascinating to me that – it's not really gone, gone, but it is effectively gone. Yeah. It's funny to me that maybe what happens is that Republican senators decide they have this deregulatory agenda and 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 they end up solving the same problem. That would actually be kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be – in a national context, that would be the, yeah. the most plausible route. All right. Uh, Connor Doherty, New York Times. The book is Golden Gates. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, as always, to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our editor, Jeff Geld, producer, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.